optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're just in a broken time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job each episode to tease out the habits, routines, tactics, and tools of world-class performers, whether they are from the worlds of entertainment, athletics, business, or otherwise. And in this episode, we have Nicholas McCarthy, at nmccarthypiano on Twitter, who was born in 1989 without his right hand and only started to play the piano at the age of 14. He was told he would never succeed as a concert pianist. Fortunately, the doubters were completely wrong. His graduation from the prestigious Royal College of Music in London in 2012 appeared in press around the world as he was the only one-handed pianist to graduate from the Royal College of Music in its 130-year history. Since, Nicholas has performed extensively throughout the world, including in the UK, US, South Africa, South Korea, Japan, even Malta, and Kazakhstan. He has also played alongside Coldplay and gave a rendition of the Paralympic anthem in front of an audience of 86,000 people and half a billion worldwide viewers. His first album, which I highly encourage, is entitled Solo from Warner Music. Features 17 stunning pieces of left-hand repertoire, and we talk in this interview about what that means, spanning three centuries and has been released around the world to great acclaim. This was a blast of an interview, 
and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Please say hello to Nicholas on social. And as always, thank you for listening. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Where are we finding you right now? Where Where are you seated? So I'm sat in my lounge at my home, where I haven't been for about three weeks because I've been on tour. So it's uh, yeah, it's quite nice. It's nice to be chatting you chatting to you from from my house for once. <laughs> and is that in the UK? That is in the UK. Sorry, yeah, that, that's in the UK. So I'm about fifty minutes outside of London. And you have a companion with you also, in case we hear any barking. Who's that? That's my little Pomeranian Binny. <laughs> who is very good and she's quiet unless a dog walks past the front of my house and then she senses they're there and likes to say hello. So I'm sorry if that happens, listeners. <laughs> That's what dogs do. I remember hearing you comment, I guess it was in a BBC interview, that uh, she, she was a good companion but a little breathy in the, dre- in the, uh, yeah. in the dressing room. <laughs> she is. She is a bit breathy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so talking about sensing things, uh, let's start towards the beginning, maybe not the very beginning, but when did you first get bitten by the bug as it related to music or piano? It was very late, actually. It was, it was when I was 14, which for most you know, people who go into music as their full-time career, they usually have started at the age of three or four, you know, on average, even younger sometimes. Um, and usually by that, they've kind of played their first public concert by the time they're five or six and maybe played with their first orchestra by seven or eight, you know, for the when, when I'm talking about these kind of professional concert pianists or concert violinists or whatever you want to say. So for me to start at 14, again, I was already swimming, up, sw- swimming upstream for, for one very clear reason, but that also exasperated that really. And uh, what was it at age 14 that triggered it? Well, I was very non-academic, should I say, at school. I was very average. Academia didn't interest me. I, I wouldn't go and study for hours because, I, you know, I, I wanted to or I had to. I, I just wouldn't. I wasn't like that. So I kind of didn't really discover anything throughout my life where I was really good at it, you know, until 14 when I discovered the piano. And what happened, I, a friend of mine, I'm still friends with today, a very accomplished pianist, she played one of Beethoven's late piano sonatas, the Waldstein Sonata. And she played that in, in my school assembly. And I just had one of those moments that you see in movies, that you see on TV, you know, you, you hear people talk about. I had one of those moments where I was just completely transported, completely bitten by the piano bug. And I just loved everything about, about the instrument, the way it looked on stage, the, the sound that was coming out of this instrument, the possibilities of what it was, what it was like. And you remember what it was like when you were a teenager. You've got that teenage invincibility, you know, that, that kind of thing where, you know, anything is possible and it's fine. And, and, and I loved that. And, and so for me, looking back, I didn't even think about the fact I only had one hand. 
I just, in my head, that is what I was going to be. I was going to be a concert pianist, not just play the piano, but I was going to earn my living from playing the piano. Walk me through just the, the moments before and after that experience. I'm just, I'm, I'm always curious about these types of details. Were you talking to your friends and then all of a sudden the music started and you just stopped talking? Were you paying attention from the very beginning? And then what was your response afterwards? We were all quiet. We were all in assembly. We were, you know, we sat down on our chairs and, and obviously we all knew that, that my friend could play the piano. She'd played in school a lot. Um, but I, I hadn't seen her play in this capacity before. You know, I hadn't seen her play on the big piano in our, in our hall. You know, it, it wasn't like, so we were all quite in anticipation, but just normal. You know, we were just kind of waiting for this performance to happen. Like you do in school, you just get told to do something. You do it, don't you? you go and sit down. <laughs> so we were all just waiting. And I didn't realize that that moment and that, that, you know, 10 minutes performance would affect my entire life and my entire career and everything about me. You know, I, I didn't realize that obviously at the time afterwards, again, with probably again, that teenage, what's the word where, you know, you're a bit flat as a teenager as well. Sometimes, you know, even though I said earlier, we've got that teenage invincibility, you're almost sometimes a bit like, well, yeah, I'm going to be a concertinist. That's right. <laughs> Very nonchalant. As if it's an easy career choice, you know, it was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go and do that. And, and that's, that is how it went. That is how it went, and that that immediate that immediacy either side of that performance. What were your What were the next steps after that? I mean, did you sit down and have a conversation with your parents? Did you get a hold of some type of keyboard on your own and start tooling around with it and seeing what you could come up with? Did you find a teacher? What were the next steps? Well, it wasn't ever as formal as sitting down with mum and dad. You know, my mum and dad are both non-musicians. They're both sales people for a living. They're just hardworking, normal people. Um, they've got no particular interest in classical music at all, um, apart from, you know, the odd favourites that you hear on adverts and things. So for me, I just went home and I just said, mum and dad, I, I, I want to be a concert pianist. And I'd, I can't really remember their faces, but I'd love to have seen their faces <laughs> when their one-armed son comes up to me. I want to be a concert pianist. Like, really? Are you sure? Are you really sure? Um, so yeah, it 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 was fine. And, and mum and dad just said, "Okay, well, but what do we what do we need to do? What do you want to do?" I said, "Well, I need you know, can I have a piano?" The answer was very quickly, "No." of course, as if they're cheap instruments. <laughs> so I was like, no, this could be a very quick passing fad. We'll get you a keyboard, which was also very generous of them to do. So they bought me, you know, a, a middle of the run kind of keyboard. And, uh, and, and that's what I started to learn on. So I started, you know, teaching myself to read music, teaching myself the keys on the piano, because obviously I didn't know any of this at that stage. They don't really teach that in, in school in England like they used to. Um, so, you know, I didn't really know, I kind of knew where middle C was on a piano, but that was it. So I was kind of working things out. I started bearing in mind, as I mentioned, I come from an unmusical family. So for me, I hadn't heard of Chopin's music. I've never heard of a piece of list before. I'd never really heard Rachmaninoff. What is a P uh, what was the second one? A piece of list? List. Yeah. Franz Liszt is one of the kind of great romantic composers of, of piano literature and he was he was really held as the super virtuoso of the 19th century these are things i need to know that's why there we go there <laughs> we go um so you know i was like a sponge i literally was kind of you know searching for recordings listening to to the radio listening just absolutely trying to listen to as much stuff as i could to find out what i liked you know to find out 
you know, when you hadn't really heard of any of these pieces, like with you, I've just explained to who, who List was, you never know, he might now, when you go and listen to him, and I encourage you to go and listen to some of his works, you might absolutely fall in love with it, you know, you just don't know these things. So I was like that, I was kind of, you know, exploring all this stuff, whilst actually putting it into practice, you know, myself, just me and my, my little keyboard up in my bedroom, you know, just, just working out for myself. And there was one moment which really changed that, um, which I remember very, very clearly. As I used to listen to so much music all the time, there was one time my, my dad shouted up the stairs to me and just said, Nick, turn, turn the radio down. And uh, I said, Dad, it's not the radio, it's me. And there was deathly silence from downstairs. <laughs> and the next minute, mum and dad were at my door and they're like, do you, do you want piano lessons? And of course, the answer was yes. And that's, that's, how I, that's how kind of I transitioned from becoming a kind of self-starter, if you like, to, to then having semi-formal lessons because she was a, a local piano teacher and she was quite young. So, you know, it was all quite relaxed. Um, it wasn't as if, you know, straight away I was sent to this, you know, special teacher in Vienna or somewhere. It wasn't like that. It was just a local piano teacher. Um, but but she certainly was was how I started. And when you were teaching yourself and then starting with this local piano teacher, uh, I've tried to do, of course, a bit of homework before we jumped into this interview. Left hand or left handed repertoire. Is that something that you found on your own first or that the local teacher provided at what point did that even come into the picture and can you explain to people what that is well funny enough a lot of people don't know this even in the uk because I, I just tend not to speak about it because that's not what i do now but i started the piano playing what i affectionately call my my little arm which is my my arm which i haven't got so i was born as you know without my right hand i haven't got my my right hand my right wrist and about three quarters of my forearm but I have got my elbow. So, and I've got my elbow in a very short part of my forearm. And with that, I can actually play on the piano a single note. So I started learning two-handed pieces, if you like, and playing it as it was written. So I'd play the left-hand part as it was written. And with my little arm, I would play a single note in, in the right hand. So obviously, repertoire choices, I, would, I wouldn't be playing something with two massive big chords in each hand because I didn't have two hands to do that. So I would find pieces which had one note melody lines, for instance, and quite a complicated left hand. And I would play those. And that's how I actually did my grade exams. And I, I, I did that. And it wasn't I didn't discover left hand repertoire. I didn't even know it existed. And no one along the way told me it existed until I was 17. And, and that was exciting and and deeply, deeply frustrating for me at that time. Why was it, was it frustrating because you wish you'd found it earlier or was it frustrating for a different reason? No, I, I had no, I didn't want to play it. I, I was so in love with, with the repertoire that I'd learned, you know, Mozart and Rachmaninoff and Mendelssohn and, and all these composers which I, I'd grown to know and love to then be told at the age of 17 after, you know, working so hard and by this point having gained a place at, at a London music school, I was then, you know, told that I had to kind of wave goodbye to that repertoire and say hello to this left-hand repertoire, which I knew nothing about and I had no intention of it. And actually, and actually, I, I think as well, my attitude at the time, being a very headstrong 17-year-old, was that, well, no, I don't want to play left-hand repertoire because I can do this. I can play two-handed repertoire with my, with my little arm and left hand. Why do I want to specialise in left-hand repertoire? And it was what my teacher at the time said, you don't want to become a gimmick. 
and especially with all the TV talent shows, which were just coming about then, you know, it was it was it was all the start of like, you know, Britain's Got Talent and all that kind of thing. I'm so pleased I took her advice because I would have just been that gimmick who would have maybe, you know, made a quick buck over two years, but certainly wouldn't have had the respect that I have now as a pianist and certainly wouldn't have had the career that I've had to date and that I look forward to continuing until, you know, I'm in my 60s. You know, classical musicians do have long careers. We're not, we don't burn out, you know, we don't, it, you can you can carry on playing until until you want to stop. Um, and I think if I went down that route of the, the gimmicky route, and believe me, Tim, I... I've said in, in the papers over here and I've said, I've said it in various interviews every year. I did, if, even if I didn't own a calendar, I would be able to tell you the month because every year I get, well, my manager gets now, but I used to get before I had management, an email or a phone call from Britain's Got Talent asking <laughs> me to go on the show. And I, I've had that for years. And, and I, I'm a big fan of the show. I love it. I'm, I'm one of their viewers. But I, for me, it's just not for me. Because yep. those those doors I've tried to hold open the classical music world and and to try and to to try and, and spread my message in in the least gimmicky way I can I've worked so hard to do that if as soon as I kind of sold out and did one of these shows all of the classical music doors would close on me and I'd never be able to reopen them again yes I'd have a bigger fan base I'm sure but you know I'm looking at the long term and I always have been ever since I was young so. Yeah, there's there's various different things. So uh, there are at least two dozen questions I want to ask about everything you just said. So the few points, I mean, just to reiterate something you said, which is the importance of playing the long game, right? Because it, particularly in a, how should we call it, sort of esteemed high barrier to entry world like classical music, you can... It, it might take you 20 years to build a reputation and only 20 minutes to destroy it if you make the yeah. wrong choices. Cool. And it's something that you know, I've spoken with a former podcast guest about Eric Weinstein, who is a mathematician and physicist. And he said, you know, general fame is overrated. You want to effectively be famous to 3000 people or so of your choosing, right? And if you do that, and if you do that well, you really, you can do what you want with whom you want and effectively have all the things that you would like to have and, and do in life, it, it seems to me at least. But one of my questions to you was, or is rather, what, what gave you the unusual combination as a teenager of being headstrong enough that as a one-handed piano player, well, as a one-handed boy, you would aim to be a concert pianist, right? I mean, thank God for that, that you had that sort of stubborn will, while at the same time you were open to the suggestions of this piano teacher? Was it, was it something special about the teacher? Was it something that your parents installed in you? It's an unusual combination to, to be both very stubborn and open-minded at that age. Mm. I think I've always been both of those things. <laughs> I think I've always been through, if I look back, you know, through, through my childhood, um, I've always been one of those really headstrong, headstrong people who, you know, you tell me I can't do something and I will do everything in my power, even if I've lost interest in it by that point. I'll still go ahead and do it because I need to prove that person wrong. Are your parents that way? No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> do, you have any, do you have any siblings? I've, no, I'm an only child. And I think probably that contributes to it as well. And I think the fact of my disability and being born with one hand, that contributes to it. 
I mean, I'll give you an example. When I was younger, you know, I lived in a very small street with lots and lots of kids my age. So we were all friends. We all used to play out, you know, in the street together and things. And I remember one of the parents said to my mum, and she, this was not in a malicious way at all. This was in a, you know, a kind of, I don't know what way she meant it, but she said, oh, it, it's it's such a shame that, you know, Nicholas won't really be able to to uh, to learn to ride his his bike with, with the other boys. And my mum said, oh, I'm sure he'll find a way. And uh, and I overheard this conversation. So in my head, I then we were all quite young and we all had our training wheels on our bikes. And um, and I, I, I had told, remember even hearing my inner voice in my head saying to myself, I want to be the first boy, not want to be, I'm going to be the first boy out of all of my group of friends to ride my bike without training wheels. And I did. And I remember all the parents standing at their front porches looking and some of the women were crying with kind of admiration and things like that, which of course I loved as well. <laughs> I loved, I'm not good enough. I mean, I remember being very, very pleased with myself at that age. And I must have, I don't know how old, old I was, but you know, I was, I was young, but I remember that. And that is just, that is what I've been. I've always been like that since with anything, just like I said to you earlier, just not with academia. Cause I just didn't care. I just didn't care, you know, academic stuff. It just wasn't my bag. It just didn't, I didn't feel that, that burning desire to prove anything with that. For people who aren't familiar, and I would count my, myself among those people, what do the hands generally do in piano, meaning the left and the right? You mentioned melody earlier. Is that typically the responsibility of one hand over the other? Yeah. Yes, definitely. The right hand is certainly the star of the show, and your left hand is the supporting actor. That's how so I your left hand's kind of like the rhythm guitar, and your exactly. right hand is the soloist? Exactly. Not obviously, obviously, there's so many pieces of classical music. So that doesn't apply to everything, of course. But usually I'm saying generally, generally speaking, the right hand is doing all the flashy virtuoso big stuff that you're seeing and carries that melody line. And the left hand also, you know, in two handed repertoire does a lot of very difficult things and virtuosic things. But it's, it's the supporting harmony, you know, usually. And with left hand repertoire, that turns everything on its head. So me as a left-hand pianist, I have to create to you, the listener, or you, the, the audience, that there's in fact two or even three hands playing this piano, whereas in fact there's only just one. So the amount of times I've had people come up to me and say, so, so do you play you know, with, a, with a, an overdub? Do you record, pre-record stuff and then play along with it? I'm saying, well, no, it's just, just me and, a, and, a, and an acoustic piano. And it's because their ears are, are tricking them or I'm creating that illusion where it doesn't look at, you know, the sound is a lot fuller than it looks that I'm playing. Maybe this is a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. The right hand sort of virtuoso flair, left hand rhythm tradition in piano, does that create difficulties for two handed but left hand dominant piano players? Because presumably that was created by people who were setting the norms and who are right-hand dominant. So d does that mean at the highest levels of two-handed piano playing that the majority of players are right-hand dominant? I, I would probably say so. I do know a couple of, of very well-known two-handed pianists who are actually left-handed naturally and in day-to-day -day life. I think obviously when you're, when you're honing your craft at, this, at, the, at the, the level that we are honing our crafts to as, as, as concert performers, 
it doesn't matter what hand is dominant. And I'm speaking for someone with one hand, as you know, so I can't be the authoritative figure on this. But um, I would say that, you know, because it's like a, a, a sports person, you're, you're, you're rehearsing, you're, you're practicing so, so much that even if that left hand is more naturally dominant, because the right hand is the way the music's written, you're having to do this, these right hand technical difficulties. And if you can't do it, then you can't play the piece then I think it's just something that as, as, as two-handed pianists would just get over. They just have to work at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, when uh, I'm not left-handed, I'm right-handed, but uh, it's when you really stop to notice a lot of the day-to-day -day interactions with objects, they seem to be designed very much for a right-handed world. Yes. And even something as un- uh, is non-obvious as, for instance, dog training. They always have the dog heel on the left-hand side. And I was, at least in the United States, that's true. And I was thinking to myself, why is it on the left-hand side? And the only explanation, plausible that explanation that I could come up with, pure speculation, was that because many people are right-handed, perhaps this was developed for, say, seeing eye dogs, where someone would have something in their non-dominant left hand securing them to the dog. And it just brings up all sorts of questions, but I don't want to to digress too far. The I've uh, now we've we've heard some stories of uh, your supportive parents, but not everyone has been that supportive. I would imagine. No. No. Uh, can you can you t tell us about your your process of applying to to uh, musical schools? Yeah, that's where it kind of started getting slightly more difficult for me. I um this this wonderful piano teacher who I first started with, as I mentioned earlier, my local the local piano teacher. She was lovely. She was young. I really responded to her. She was really, really she was a think outside the box kind of girl, you know. And she very admirably said to, to me and my parents, Look, Nicholas has become more advanced than I am as a player. And she felt she was doing me a disservice by continuing to teach me. She felt that I needed to go and, and study properly, you know, in London with a proper concert pianist um, to further my career. Because as, as I was very, very explicit with everyone, I didn't just want to learn the piano. I wanted to become a concert pianist. So she, I, I always think she was so admirable for that because, you know, she was giving up quite a lot of money, you know, to do that, especially as a, uh, someone her age. And uh, and yet she did that for me, you know, so I'm eternally grateful for that. So I my my friend who inspired me at the age of 14, she went to a what uh, is her what is her name? Hanako. She's a, a Japanese friend of mine. Oh, well, and, uh, thank her for that. Yes. And she went to a specialist piano school and it wasn't that far from me. And so obviously in my head, I was thinking how wonderful, you know, me and Hanako can go to school. Together. It's on Saturdays. This school was held on Saturdays. And so we went to our normal school in the week and then on Saturdays you'd go to this and they did concerts in London and they, they did concert tours to Europe and all sorts of things, um, you know, really high level school. And so I think how perfect would that be? Me and my friend can go together and, you know, they already know me at the school because I'd been to see a couple of, of competitions with my friend who, who my friend was in. So I organized, I rang up the headmistress of this school one day after, after I'd finished school, I come in and I rang her and she was a very... Do you know what I mean by an old school headmistress? You know, <laughs> I mean, was, I think so. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, she was just very old school, very traditional in her teaching, in everything, you know. 
and it turns out she wasn't like my other teacher where she she wasn't thinking outside the box and she the phone call went something like this uh i said i introduced myself and said i'm a friend of hanako's and uh i i was born without my right hand and she said oh yes yes i i've heard of you i know who you are from from hanako um i'd already had a lesson with one of her, with one of the school's teachers i purposely went and had a private lesson with one of the school's teachers almost as a little inroad into the school <laughs> and uh, and and this teacher gave me her blessing and said i would love to teach you at the school you need to go and audition for the school so she kind of gave me the green light for that and how old were you at the time uh, i must have been six sixteen yeah about sixteen and she said oh yes i've heard of you because of you know, one of my faculty and because of Hanako. Um, but but unfortunately, I haven't got any time to see you or, or audition you because, you know, to be honest, I, I just don't know um, how you how you can possibly, you know, be a pianist. And I, I don't really know how how you could possibly play scales. And and I was quite the cocky 16 year old at the time. I said, well, I don't really want to play scales. I want to play music. <laughs> that must Wrong have been, been a crowd pleaser. Say. Yeah, she hung up the phone. It wasn't the best thing. So she hung up a phone on this 16-year-old one-armed boy, which I didn't think was <laughs> nice of her. Um, and, and I was deeply upset by this, as you could probably imagine, because you know what it's like at that age. Or maybe you didn't, Tim. This, this, is, this is, you know, but for me, I felt at that age that that was it. That was my one path. That was my one path of becoming a concert pianist. And that path is now ended because this woman has stopped it. Now I'm an adult. Obviously, I know there's many, many paths that people take throughout their lives to 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 success, whatever they want to do. Whereas at the time, as a, as a youngster, I just felt that that one path has now been finished and that's it. I can't do anything more. So for two weeks, I was really quite down and didn't play the piano at all. And then I don't know why I was just, you know, walking home from school one day and I thought to myself why am I letting well like how many billions of people are in the world do you know the figure I don't even know the figure but however many billions of people are in this world I'm letting one person who hasn't even seen me play the piano I'm letting one person stop me from achieving my dream and I thought well that's it I'm going to audition for a better music school so I did. I auditioned for the Junior Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London. What was the name again? Junior, well, as a junior, because obviously I was only going on Saturdays. It's the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London. So it's where Orlando Bloom studied acting. It's where, you know, there's, there's lots of big names on the acting side of it and also big names on the on the classical side of it went to. And uh, so I, I auditioned for them. I didn't I didn't say about my disability in the application form. <laughs> there was a slightly awkward moment when I turned up for the audition and it was kind of this X Factor style audition with a big grand piano and three judges at the back of the room. And I had to walk in and say, by the way, I only have one hand. And uh, yeah, it, it wasn't it, it was fine. It was just slightly awkward. But I, I played and I was offered a place. And uh, and so I was so pleased that I listened to and I had that little chat with myself on the way home from school that day where I thought I'm not going to let this one woman tell me I can't can't become a pianist and you know what interests me even even now the fact that she was she must have been in her late 60s early 70s been in the classical industry all of her life she didn't even think about left-hand repertoire hmm. she didn't even think to suggest well yes I would like to audition you but I'd like you to learn two left hand alone pieces first before you know she didn't even think of that and and that surprises me a lot now i'm just so thankful 
because my, by that path and that, that series of events, it took me to a better school. It took me to London, which was, you know, it's, it's just more, it, the standard was much higher, basically. Um, and and, it, and it, it really did kind of sow the seeds for, the, for my future career. Well, it sounds like you, in, in, uh, in some ways, dodged quite a bullet as well, in the sense that you can have old school teachers, and there are different ways to interpret that, of course, who are open-minded in some respects, and you can have old school teachers who are very close-minded, and it sounded like she was in the close-minded camp. So yeah. if, if, if organizations take on the personalities of their leaders, it's quite a good thing indeed that <laughs> you had your yeah. phone scuffled. Well, the organized that, that school isn't around anymore, so it was definitely... <laughs> yeah. It, can you tell us about Paul Wittgenstein. Yes. So Paul Wittgenstein, basically, I'll tell you a brief potted history of left-hand repertoire. Left-hand alone repertoire started in the 19th century, where a lot of the time, concert pianists, and as you mentioned earlier, most people in the world are right-handed. So concert pianists would, and they bear in mind, Tim, they, they were rock stars of their day. You know, I'm in the wrong century here. They were, <laughs> they were celebrities. You forget these reality stars. They were the celebrities of the day. They would sell out in minutes like Madonna does. And back then they would close some of them, obviously not all of them. Some of them would close their concerts. And as an encore, they would perform something with left hand alone. And the reason left hand alone is because your left hand is your naturally weaker hand. So it's almost a sense of irony. Like, you thought I was good with two hands. You wait and see what I can do with my weak hand. <laughs> it's like a princess bride moment. Yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> they, would, they would play these amazing virtuoso displays at the piano, which is with their left hand, and it would absolutely send the crowd wild. And then let's fast forward in history. The First World War happened. There was a man named Paul Wittgenstein, brother of the famous philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. You know, I was, I was actually, I was wondering that and I was like, I'm going to embarrass myself because they're probably two centuries apart. Okay. And I wasn't wrong. No, All right. The Wittgenstein family was a very wealthy, very well-respected society family of the time. And Paul, well, in those days, uh, being a concert pianist in those kind of families or being any kind of performer was very much looked down upon. So Paul's father but absolutely forbidden him to, to perform, to be a concert pianist, even though that was always Paul's lifelong ambition. So when Paul's dad died, he went out and gave his concert debut and to, to very favorable reviews. And by the, thing, by the look of things, he had a very promising career as a, as a, as a good two-handed pianist ahead of him. Then the First World War happened, and well, so within six months, he was in battle. And... Within eight months of his concert debut, he lost his right arm in battle. So talk about steely determination. He was taken as a prisoner of war. And during that time, he took, he found some old wooden crates and he, he turned these crates over and he chalked a, a piano keyboard onto these crates. And he worked out how to play some of his most fa his favorite two-handed pieces, how he could arrange them for left hand alone. He was then, thanks to his family, who you know were very influential, pulled some strings and got repatriated back to Vienna. And it was here where he decided to use his vast wealth and his the fact that you know everyone knew the Wittgensteins and wanted to be involved with the Wittgensteins. Um, he used his position and his wealth to to pay the biggest composers of the day to write pieces for him. So Ravel and Prokofiev and Benjamin Britten, Richard Strauss, Hindemith—they all composed left-hand alone pieces for him 
And he paid them around the sum of £30,000 back then. Well, now that is a lot of money for a composer to that get. That sounds like now a good chunk of change, yeah. I mean, that's above the UK salary now. So imagine back then that amount of where you could buy a house for, I don't know, 6000 or I don't wow. know. Wow. Yeah. that figure out the, out the year. But certainly, you know, it was an awful lot of money. And it was, it was that that really expanded that left-hand repertoire. Um, and really grew it to be, you know, to become a now most two-handed pianists. If you if you ask them to print out their repertoire for them, most of them will have at least one or two left-hand piano concertos in their repertoire. Usually, Ravel's piano concerto for the left hand, which is the the probably the most famous uh, piano left-hand piece out there. I've heard you mention before that you've arranged but not composed, and that might be out of date, but. To be perfectly honest, I have I thought I knew what compose meant, and now I'm not sure. What <laughs> what is arranging music versus composing music? So arranging music. So basically, I almost for me in in every century there's been since the 19th century there's been one left hand alone or one one armed pianist, if you like, who who kind of you know was making waves in their industry, and it in the 21st century I'm I'm very fortunate enough it, it seems to to be me. And that's something which I, I'm hugely proud of and hugely humbled by. And I want to provide as much repertoire, if not more, than that Paul Wittgenstein left for the likes of me to come along and play in the future. So by doing that, I do a lot of commissions. I work with a lot of commissions. Unfortunately, I'm not quite as wealthy as Paul Wittgenstein, so I haven't got a lot of you know money to be throwing around at, at these composers. But I do a lot of arranging. And is arranging taking two-handed music and converting it into, in this case? Yes. So the difference between composing is someone thinking up of a melody or an idea or something and creating a piece of music. Arranging is where I would take take from my album, for instance, um, I, I took my favorite piece of music ever, Gershwin's Summertime. And this is on your I, album solo. It's on my album solo, yes. And I decided that would work well for Left Hand Alone, which it did. So I, I arranged that for, for Left Hand Alone. And there's two other of my own arrangements on the album as well. Um, and it's lovely because, you know, people come up to my concerts afterwards and say, where, where can we buy your arrangements? And unfortunately, they're in my head. So I need to actually sit down and, and get them published properly because there's a demand for them already, which is lovely because I was kind of in my head doing it for when I die. I'm going to be passing on these people, you know, when I'm older. Um, so already it's quite nice that there's, there's a demand for, for some of my arrangements. I think you need to get those on, on paper, young man. Uh, I do. That uh, long life is not guaranteed, not to get all morbid and stoic. but no, very true, very true. Uh, I'd love for you to tell the story of the blind man in Malta, just because I found it very touching. Uh, and I'll leave it at that. This was very, very sweet and very, very, I, I was equally as, as touched. So usually when I'm, when I'm playing a concert, I obviously, I usually do my album signing after the concert. And then there's often people waiting, you know, afterwards if they want to, to speak to me further. And it's very rare in the interval that I ever have people come back at that stage. But there was, you know, there was a knock on my dressing room. My manager said, look, there's someone who really, really wants to speak to you now. Is it all right? I was like, yeah, that's, that's fine. You know, no problem. Bring him in. And so it was him. And I could see him straight away. He had a white, you know, he was blind. And he had his friend, his ably sighted friend with him. And, uh, and he, he said, he said, I just, I'm so sorry to disturb you. I, I had to come and, and speak to you now. My, my friend booked these tickets for me. And 
I didn't realise until until my friend in the interval, just as you know that last applause was happening before I, I walked off stage, said, "And isn't it wonderful that he does all of that in just this one hand?" And he said, "I just don't believe it." He said, "My ears never ever lie to me." He said, "I do not believe that you have one hand." Can I feel? Can I hold your left hand? Can I feel for a right hand? I said, yes, please, by all means. So there he is. There's my dog, you see. <laughs> it's, just, it's a rousing story. So please continue. <laughs> so there's my, my uh, you know, I'm in my dressing room. This blind man's there and he's kind of feeling my hand and, and my right arm. And, and he, he was like, I can't, I still can't believe it. And it was, it was, it was lovely. And I said to him, I said, well, it means I'm doing my job right. Because I'm creating that illusion, and that's what I want. That's what I wanted to do, and what I, I aim to do. So, yeah, it was um, it was lovely. What a story! Now, most people listening probably have two hands, uh, and uh, I would imagine it's difficult for them to imagine what would be difficult, what might not be as difficult uh, for someone with a single hand. One note that. You had shot to me with with no elaboration, of course, was I wanted to be a chef before I was a pianist. Now, <laughs> can you please elaborate on how you cook? I mean, not now, of course, you, there are ways you can cook with one hand, but what, what types of approaches or cuisines or modifications have you made and, uh, and why cooking? I know it's funny. Again, it's an equally dexterous job. I don't know why I was drawn to these two-handed jobs. <laughs> all the time i don't know what it is but um i again i i don't really think i adapt anything really i think you know i think one well one thing if i'm cooking for friends for instance i always put because if say i'm slicing an onion mm -hmm. so i will support the onion with my little arm mm -hmm. and i'll obviously slice with my left hand but what i do is i put a sandwich bag you know like a little bag kind of thing over mm -hmm. my little arm Mm -hmm. that way i just i don't know why i do that actually but yeah i would say that's kind of one one little adaptation i just do i almost feel like it's more it's a bit weird kind of cooking with a forearm they don't, <laughs> they don't, they don't seem quite even though obviously wash your hands and why i wash wash my forearm but it doesn't seem quite as hygienic as cooking with hands so i like <laughs> I, I think i kind of yeah put a little a little bag over it and, and work it that way um but yeah apart from that i don't there's nothing really i can't do i crack eggs with one hand yeah, I, I think it, I never really struggle with, with cooking. And I think the more I travel, and obviously my job involves an awful lot of travel, and food is, I'm such a foodie. I'm mm -hmm. such a foodie. Like food is, I, I'm driven by food probably equally as much as I am by music, which isn't always good for your waistline. But <laughs> I, What's your favorite cuisine? Do you have a favorite cuisine? Japanese, definitely, which is good for your waistline, um, unless it's kind of okonomiyaki kind of things, and then it's just hugely high in carbon sugar and <laughs> oh it's so good though like the cut, cut, cuts katsudon like the deep fried pork cutlets on rice oh, with oh even go, it's amazing it's so and so I, I mean i love playing in japan anyway but especially you know over here japanese food like it is in the states is very popular but when you go to japan it's just on a different level you know it's completely as you know it, it's it's just it's just amazing <laughs> it's a, yeah it's an alien landscape it's really an incredible experience. Is there a particular, I remember having this conversation with Paul Levesque, but Triple H, he's a very well-known professional wrestler. And he was at one point over din dinner describing to me the differences among, 
or I should say across different crowds and how the Japanese are totally different from the Brits who are totally different from the next person. When you perform, is there any particular audience or place that treats you with just uh, an inordinate amount of respect or reverence? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the difference, like with that, your previous podcast guest, it's huge. Um, us Brits tend to be quite staid. <laughs> which doesn't surprise anybody really um we tend to just applause and you know be quite reserved whereas when i'm in malta or you know italy and, and places like that they're very vocal you know bravo bravo bravissimo and you know the shouting which i love you know it's great i love that they're very vocal if they've enjoyed something um when i've played in the states i've only actually played in in, in the states a couple of times now um and i've always been very you know well welcome there they're, they're lovely um and I think they, you know, you guys kind of get my story, whereas a lot of places like France, for instance, they're not really interested in in the story that goes with me. They just want to hear the music. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's definitely I mean, Japan and South Korea, their response is great. And they have a really I mean, you've probably experienced it over there, Tim. You know, they, they, they have this fandom. They, they, they love being a fan. You know, like I've had to, when I'm in Japan, you know, people come up to me and ask me to sign the backs of their iPhones, like their actual metal iPhones on the back. And I feel like, oh, no, I don't want to ruin it for you. <laughs> you know, where that doesn't happen here. Um, so, yeah, it, it's so funny. It's, it's different. It's, it's very different. And it's all it's all wonderful. And it, it's and especially when you go back to places, you know what to expect as well. You know that, you know. What, what certain countries are like with their, with their uh, appreciation of you. So I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. I'd like to ask some rapid-fire questions, uh, which honestly don't know why I call them rapid-fire questions. They tend to be shorter questions, but your answers don't need to be short. They can be, but don't need to be. As you can tell, I'm quite a chatterbox, so they're not probably going to be short. <laughs> That's I'm <fun>. sorry. <laughs> the, the first is when you, when you hear the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind and why? In my industry or just generally? Uh, let's say both. Let's say both. I would say successful. I would say Bethany Frankel. Mm -hmm. Big fan of hers. I love, uh, I love the kind of rags to riches thing, you know, and the fact of what she did and the brand she created. And it's kind of, you know, I know I'm not in a liquor brand, but again, I'm trying to create my own brand as, as me, you know, and, and it's hard. You know, people don't teach you when you're in, when I'm at the Royal College of Music, for instance, they don't teach you how to, create a brand, create your own, you know, your own brand as an artist, you, you don't get taught any of that, you've got to do it yourself or learn how to do it. So and, and similar to, you know, how she did. Um, unfortunately, I don't think I can sell myself for, you know, 150 million or however much she sold her company for. But, so that's a uh, yeah, skinny, skinny girl or whatever. It was called, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say that's someone I do think of when I think of success in my industry. Um, I would say Lang Lang. The Chinese concert pianist Lang Lang. Lang Lang. Yeah, he's kind of bagged the, you know, the whole brand endorsement thing, and you know everything which kind of one day I hope to do. He's kind of he's he's done that, and and definitely, you know, whether you like his playing or not, you can't deny that he is certainly a uh, phenomenon in in our industry. What book or books have you gifted the most to other people? If you have. I'm not really, a, I'm not, I'm kind of, I'm more of a Kindle kind of person. So I don't really gift books. Sorry if that's a really boring. No, no, that's not, that's, that's. I actually totally don't, fun. I've ever given a book a gift. 
Okay. Well, we can we can we can dance with that. So, what are there any books you've read more than once that come to mind? Um, I would say I like books about people. I like books about interesting people. So I like autobiographies, but not like a reality star's autobiography. I like you know a really interesting person's autobiography. Um, any particular autobios come to mind? Yeah, I, like Graham Norton, the guy who he's he's quite big over here in the in the UK and the guy who you were listening to that's the, right the BBC interviewer yeah um he's he's great because he had a fascinating life and you know yeah I, I've enjoyed I've read that I've read that twice <laughs> now um so I would say I, I, anything about you know and anything about people Nina Simone I remember reading her, her I'm uh, sorry what was that name again Nina Simone oh yeah mm-hmm. Um, I read a biography of her, and that was that was fascinating. So, yeah, I think I like I like the I like the real life kind of real people thing. I'm not really one to go and get lost in a novel. That is really me. I'll uh, make a suggestion for autobiographies, which is Open by Andre Agassi. Even if you're not a tennis uh, fan or player, which I'm neither really, but Open it is one of the most incredible books. In terms of autobiographies that I've read in probably the last five years, I think you okay. might enjoy. I will add that to my list. That sounds my cup of tea. Uh, how old are you at the moment? I'm 27. 27. Wrong side of 25 now. Yeah, I'd like side, to be in 25. Wrong side of 25. What advice would you give to your 20 year old self? And can you place us as to where you were or what you were doing? I would probably say so. I at the age of 20, I forget what 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 age I was when I started the Royal College, but I think if I'm right in saying, I think I had started the Royal College then. What I would say would be, don't listen to, <laughs> don't listen to people. No, don't listen to the negativity because I used to do that a lot, and it would influence me. And it was, it's only since I've kind of, I would say, it's only really the last four years really that I've consistently not listened to negativity. You know, obviously, when I when I was being turned down by that music school and various things, you know, earlier that like we spoke about earlier, I, I obviously wasn't listening to that negativity then. But there's been some other times where I have listened to people. You know, I've had people say to me before, well, uh, you know, well, of course. And they're always a certain type of age, these people, you know, very, you know, older people in the classical industry. Well, it, it's, it's a shame that, you know, you, 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 you won't ever really be able to, to have a recording career. And... I used to be like, oh, well, well, what a shame, because that is what I really want to do. And then, obviously, I went on and signed my major record deal with Warner Music. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I, you know, I wish I could have, I wish I could have told myself that or whispered in my ear, being like, don't listen to them because you're going to be more well known than they think you're going to be. <laughs> you know. <laughs> now, when you hear negativity now, how you cope with or respond to negativity is there something that you say to yourself? when you hear it, because of course there's a lot of negativity in the world. Uh, you can just go online and you're going to uh, end up waiting in the mud at some point. What, what do you, how do you, how have you trained yourself to not take the negativity to heart? Is there something you say to yourself? Is there a practice of some type that helps with that? I usually, well, I always now try and spin it and make it into a positive so I usually visualize myself I'm quite a visual person so I you know say for instance I mean you know I'm, I'm quite lucky it's not as cutthroat as it is in like the celebrity world obviously the classical world it is cutthroat but it's not as um it's not as what's the thing 
as negative, where people are just being negative for the sake of being negative, like tabloid press, for instance. We don't really get that yet. So in regards to kind of negative comments, I don't tend to get them a lot. But things like negative things like if I really, really wanted to play this certain concert or this certain concerto and then someone else has got that, I kind of then use that as a positive. So I would say, you know, it's not it's not my time and it was their time. I'll close my eyes. I'll visualize myself in that situation in two years time, for instance. And I just think, you know what, whatever it will be, will be, you know, it is what it is. Nothing I can do about it. And I wish I had that when I was younger because I used to take things in and get so frustrated with things and so upset about things. And, and now I just don't, I just think, you know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I quite like that phrase. It is what it is. It kind of sums everything up really. Nothing you can do about it. <laughs> so that's a, well, that's a good segue. So you don't have to choose that, but if you could put anything on a gigantic billboard, uh, that was not an advertisement, what would it be? What would it say? Anything is possible. Anything that's is possible. What, that is just my, I just wholeheartedly believe that. And actually, I've had some negativity about that because there's some people I've been interviewed, you know, about things. And that's the message I bring to the countries I visit and things because I do 100% think that. And I think, why, why wouldn't I think that? Because a guy who's from a non-classical background, from a non-moneyed background, from a very small village in England, who, you know, no one's really done a great deal from where I'm from. And and then for me to, you know, with one arm as well, and the age I started to then become and, and enter this this arena of kind of, you know, highbrow classical music and kind of this honing your craft to the, to the, to the highest level. And I, I think by me doing that, I, I 100% think that anything is possible. And I just think, of course, with hard work, determination, those things go hand in hand. But there's been people who say to me, yeah, but I, I don't believe that, you know, I, I couldn't go out and be, you know, and she, this one woman it was a journalist and said, you know, I couldn't go out and be, you know, the, the best lawyer in, in the world. I said, well, you probably could if you actually wanted to. And you actually wanted to, to if you 100% believed that yourself and you felt that you were going to be that person. But you don't think that and you don't want to be that. So you're not going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Tough talk. I like it. Uh, yeah, how it Got to tell how I got to tell how it is. Do, do you have any particular morning routines? So, uh, or any routines or habits that are important to you? Say in the first hour or two of your day. Yeah, I I'm quite a late. But I usually wake up about nine a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, which I know is quite late for a lot of people. I do practice later at night though. I I, I always feel because I'm on stage usually at seven thirty and I'm off stage at ten thirty. That's kind of more where I prefer to practice. I'm not really a daytime practicer. I almost feel like I'm missing out, even though people are at work. Mm-hmm. You know, most of my friends have normal jobs; they're just at work and things. I still feel like I'm missing out. I don't know why. Um, so I'm not really a one for for daytime practice. So I do work slightly later. So that I get I get up about nine a.m. and I usually go to the gym in the morning to do a run. I'm I'm quite a good runner and I I enjoy it as well. And I don't ever listen to music when I'm running, which people find very bizarre. Um, you know, people are constantly jogging and running with their headphones in and there's me with nothing in. And that is my, my time. If you think I'm surrounded by music all the time um, and I'm surrounded by my own voice and speaking and doing interviews and things. So it's, it, I like the silence. I like the silence of, of running without headphones in, without me talking about myself without me doing you know doing anything and just to to run and I do I do a lot of running for two different reasons 
One, because as I said, I love food so much. Two, because it, I find running the best way to increase stamina. And because of my concerts, I have to have a very high stamina because it's hard work playing the piano for 90 minutes with one hand. So I have to kind of do anything in my power to increase that, that natural stamina. Mm. So, yeah, my morning routine starts at nine. I go for a run, usually, maybe four times, five times a week. And then I would come home, have my shower, and then I'm just ready for the day then, whether that is a little bit of practice or whether I've got my interviews to do or catch up on emails or other projects that I'm doing or take my dog for a walk, you know, just, just things like that, really. You mentioned building a brand earlier. Are there any resources, books, quotes, anything that you found very helpful in trying to differentiate yourself uh, and build a career? Well, I think with me, I, I, again, it's difficult because most books on branding is talking about a product. And yes, I know I am a product, essentially. But it's different, isn't it? When you're branding a person or an image or, you know, it, it's kind of different. You have to think. And also with me having one hand, I've instantly differentiated myself anyway in that sense. But I've always found a way of try, or I hope I've tried to find a way of branding myself without always screaming from the rooftops that I have one arm. You know, right. I don't, I, I never want to just to be like, well, yes, you know, and obviously he's very good for having one arm. I want people to say, and, and luckily they do now, and say, he's a fantastic pianist. By the way, and isn't it fantastic, he's only got one hand. You know, it, it's first and foremost, I wanted to be recognized for my playing ability, not for the fact that I've come a long way with one arm. Mm -hmm. So that branding-wise and marketing-wise and things, you've got to be very careful with that. Now, the press over here, you know, do brand me the, the one-armed pianist, and that's fine. But it is, you know, my, my phrase again, it is what it is, and, they, and it's saying what I am. It's kind of, that is what I am. I'm, I'm proud of that at the same time. Like I say, I never wanted it to be gimmicky. Because if I did want it to be gimmicky, I would have done one of the big TV challenge shows. Yeah, and I think you, I think you made the right choice on that. Um, so we, we've talked about some of your, your wins. Have you had any particularly punishing failures that have set you up in some way for later successes? Or do you have a, a favorite failure story of any type? See, being a very positive person, I try and spin any failures into a positive. <laughs> I think, I wouldn't say this was a failure, but this was something that's, that, that was hard to swallow. I, a couple of years ago, got, because, you know, do it being a public speaker, I do a, a lot of, of speaking for, for various businesses and, and things like that. And as you've seen my TED Talk and things. And that's a side of my career, which I love. I love motivating people, inspiring people in any way possible. And the BBC picked up on on the fact that I was a good presenter and they asked me if I'd be interested in presenting for television a couple of the uh, BBC proms, which are obviously a huge deal over here. Now, what is, I apologize, when I hear the word prom in the US, it's it's usually associated with sort of a a, a ball of sorts with like high school graduation or college graduation. Yeah, that's the same here. We have our, our kind of high school, college graduation balls as well. Um, with, with regarding proms, it's an old tradition. It's, got, it's called, it's basically, um, it's held in the Royal Albert Hall. It's a, it's a big, big festival all through the summer of classical concerts every single day by the biggest names. So the whole world kind of descends on this big festival. It's now obviously covered by the BBC, but it never used to be. It, it went before the BBC. And the word proms refers to promise, 
and it's where you can get five pound tickets on the day for standing in the arena. Huh. Um, so it's basically making classical music very accessible. And if you're one of those people who stand in the arena, you're called a promer. Um, so it's kind of this kind of tradition thing. It, it goes back years, um, but it's a really massive, massive cultural thing here because we do get the biggest names and the biggest orchestras every single day from you know the end of July through to September, every single day in the Royal Albert Hall. And people queue all the way, you know, even the, most of the concerts sell out very, very quickly, but they don't ever sell those promise tickets until the day and you have to queue up for them. So you're pretty much always guaranteed a ticket if you're willing to be a promer and pay That's five. That's cool. Pounds. I like and, that. And, but it's broadcast on radio every single day, every concert broadcast on radio, and some of them are broadcast on television, which I was I was picked to to do. Um and one of the uh the proms that I was meant to which I was asked to present was a pianist, very, very good pianist, very good French pianist, was uh, playing Ravel's left-hand piano concerto. So when the BBC asked me to, to would I be interested in presenting for them? And I said, of course, yes. And here's what you'll be presenting. And I said, that's fine. I said, Have it, has it not crossed your mind that maybe having Britain's only one-handed concert pianist, actually probably the world's only one-handed concert pianist, presenting a prom where a two-handed pianist is playing Ravel's left-hand piano concerto, do you think that might give a little bit of backlash? And they said, oh, we didn't really think of that. I said, well, I'll tell you for now, I'm more than happy to do that. To, I'm more than happy to be involved. But some of my fans, who are very, very loyal, <laughs> very, very supportive, won't take, you know, they'll, they'll find it bizarre. They'll just find it odd and they will comment. Well, I said that, and then there was always that slight worry that no one would write into the BBC or no one would tweet into the BBC about, you know, how awful it is that Nicholas McCarthy was presenting this prom when a two-handed pianist was playing in the left-hand concerto. Um, but luckily, they got lots of complaints and uh, and and tweets in about, you know, not necessarily complaints, but just highlighting the fact that, you know, it was probably not the best decision on their part. For me, it was fine. It was kind of hard to swallow at first because I thought, why wasn't it me? But you know what? It was his time. He played it brilliantly and good for him. Um, and I, I was pleased that people tweeted in and, and wrote in. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> what What has been the best investment you've ever made? That could be money, time, or energy. And I, I know that's a big question, but whatever comes to mind. See, that's difficult. Because when you're starting out in any creative industry, and especially, you know, in music, people forget that I mean, a lot of people think, especially in the classical world, that, you know, you don't need to be investing in yourself, whereas I completely have. <laughs> um, when you're creating any brand, you've got to do that. And, and you know, the amount of when I was first starting out, the amount of concerts I was doing for free just to build a fan base, just to sell a couple of my self-produced CDs and kind of earn the money off of that, you know, that is investment, you know, me spending £2,000 to, oh, to make my first CD just so I can sell it. And yes, I made my money back on it, but, you know, I didn't know I was going to make my money back on it. So there's been so many times and things like, you know, video production for, for YouTube, and especially now there's so, there's so much content that people are thirsty for content. If you want to be part of that, you've got to create that content. And as you know, Tim, that isn't cheap to do. <laughs> that isn't cheap to do. You, you, there's a cost to it. It takes people. You can't just do it all on your own. Um, and and that that does take money to do that. So I would say there's been so many things. I would say maybe I think I got offered, which was very kind, 
by, do you know the, the violinist Nigel Kennedy? I've heard the name, but yeah, I, I'm not. very famous over here. He, in 1989, he released uh, The Four Seasons, Vivaldi's The Four Seasons, and he sold pop numbers of them. He really made classical quite cool back then. Even my mum and dad bought this album. And the producer of that, he's a very, very well-known producer called Andrew Keener. He's produced the biggest names in the classical world. And he produced that album, which went on to sell pop figures of, of this classical album. Um, and Andrew heard of me and, you know, I hadn't done a great deal by this stage. I had graduated from the Royal College and I'd played at the Paralympic closing ceremony and various things, but I hadn't done, you know, a lot, a lot. And, uh, and he contacted me and said, you know, I'd love to produce a demo disc for you for, for, you know, free of charge. Um, if you'd be interested. And that is like, I don't know who's the best producer in pop. I don't know who it is, but that's like them ringing you up and say, Oh, I'll produce you for free. <laughs> it was like okay you know i'd never recorded apart from myself when i'd done it very very crudely myself i'd never had that so here i was from you know having two self-produced discs very crudely done to them sat in a concert hall with andrew keener producer extraordinaire um and you know i still i had to it cost money because i had to pay for the studio i had to pay for the engineer i had to pay for various things and it cost quite a lot of money but what it got what i got out of that was completely invaluable how did he hear about you if you trace it back like what is what does the spider's web look like i was on the cover of a piano magazine over here and i think he must have read it and then got in touch with me about it because this is the thing with me i mean you i've, I've never done there's usually a blueprint from thing if you see any success whether it's in pop or classical or whatever you're in there's usually a, a, a blueprint of what happens you know you in classical most people kind of win a big competition and get signed by an agent and then they start you know touring around and then they get signed by a big record label and then obviously the PR from that is amazing and you know then you become a name and then you do another album and, and blah 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 whereas me, with me that didn't happen I started getting major major worldwide and national press before I'd even done anything you know, I I hadn't even I was playing maybe three or four free concerts a year mm-hmm. to a couple of hundred people. Yet I was on the biggest shows promoting. Well, not a lot really because I didn't have anything to promote. <laughs> you know, and and it's kind of I did everything backwards. So I wasn't you know I didn't get picked up by the agent straight away. I didn't get signed straight away. I, I none of that happened. I did everything backwards. So I was already seen as a success, even though. The reality wasn't that, you know, yes, I was looked at as a success because I was on all these shows and people were seeing my name a lot, but I didn't have any of the things which kind of went with that. I didn't have the 90 concerts a year. I didn't have the the CD, which was being sold around the world. And every time I was on a show, it was selling more copies. It wasn't happening. That, that didn't happen for me. So I've, I've always been, everything's always been a bit topsy-turvy with me. <laughs> if you were to be in charge of a piano school or to just teach someone with no musical background how to play piano and you could choose you you could choose one-handed or two-handed or or design the curriculum right If if you wanted to because i feel like there's i've taken music lessons for piano trumpet trombone uh recorder flute you go down the list the only thing that really stuck for me was the drums i think in part because i'm impatient and you can sound 
conceivably tolerable pretty quickly <laughs> with, the, <laughs> with the drums. But if you wanted more people to stick with piano, how would you teach them in the first few weeks or what would you do differently than is, is commonly done? First of all, I would find out what their musical tastes are. Now, there's a, a, a misconception with classical music that, and the amount of times I hear this, that people say, oh, no, 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 I don't like classical music. It's boring. I'm thinking, well, classical music is a very big umbrella. Yeah. You know, that, there's a lot of stuff in there. I mean, you might not like opera, but you might love piano. You might not love Bach, but you might love Chopin's music. You know, you, you can't just write, you can't just discount a whole kind of section of our history and of our, of, of culture just because you've heard a couple of pieces, which, yes, you may have found boring, and I'm sure you did. The amount of times I turn on a classical radio station and I turn it off again because I'm bored by it because it's not my cup of tea, some of the stuff they play. You know, it, it, it's like with pop music. You don't say, say, for instance, if you didn't like Rihanna, you don't then say, well, I don't like pop music because you might like Adele. You know, right. but, but, with, but with people, people's mentality with classical music is very different. They, they feel that they don't like the entire... 300 years of music because of they've heard two pieces that they don't like <laughs> so that's part of my thing i would instantly educate people on listening i'd get them listening to find out what they actually like and then i'd run with that i would then say right so you like russian 20th century music okay so let's learn some prokofiev let's look at some Kabalevsky. let's look at some composers which you know aren't on the tip of everybody's tongue but i'm sure you might love you know so could you on that point if uh, i do enjoy a lot of classical music uh, but don't know the first thing about it and and nine times out of ten have no idea what i'm even listening to honestly if if i wanted to or people listening wanted to explore a few lesser known classical musicians or composers who might you recommend well, to you, I would say go and listen to List. <laughs> yeah, and that's just and and that's just L I S T. L I S Z T. Hungarian composer, um, very very famous classical composer. So yeah, go and listen to him. I would say, pianist wise, I would say YouTube the the concert the Argentinian concert pianist called Martha Argerich. She is just superhuman. She's she's quite elderly now, but she still plays. She's coming to the BBC Proms this year. Um, she's, she has cult status in our world. I mean, she sold out the Royal Albert Hall, which is what, 6,000 seats? You know, she sold that out in a day or two, I think. Um, obviously the promise can still go and see her, as I mentioned earlier, but yeah, um, I would go and, I would go and YouTube her because you, it's almost watching her is, is just, it's just superhuman what she can do. <laughs> cool. What is some of the worst advice that you see or hear often? Hmm. See, it's funny. People don't really give me advice anymore. But when I was first starting out, people, I remember having a meeting with an agent once. And she said, this was before I, I got my, my management and things and before I'd signed my record deal and, you know, things. But things had happened for me. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd done quite a lot of stuff by that point. And I remember her saying, yes, well, I think you should, you should go and do your master's degree at £9,000 a year for two years. And then I think you should take another two years out and go and study in Vienna or something. And I'd been working for probably two years by that stage. 
And I thought, why am I, you know, why am I going to spend £18,000 minimum on doing a master's degree where I've already got my, my bachelor degree on something, I, on something that I already do? I'm, I'm playing the piano. I've already got a fan base. I'm already playing concert. And some, she just obviously had that very, very, like we mentioned that word earlier, old school. She had that old school blueprint that I was never going to fit into. Never. I mean, even when I first started doing television, when I was at the Royal College, I was doing these mainstream talk shows, daytime chat shows. No classical pianist was doing those because, you know, they didn't necessarily have the backstory that I had. And the Royal College of Music was saying, well, we, we don't think it will do you any good to, to, to do these chat shows. I said, why? I said, well, it is, you know, it's not very highbrow, is it? I mean, but I don't want to be highbrow. Music is for everyone. Music is a universal language. Why do I have to do these shows where 140,000 viewers or listeners listen to them as opposed to going on a TV show where 5 million viewers are watching? Why do I have to do that just because it's not highbrow? So I've always kind of listened to people's advice and very promptly ignored it if I thought it was wrong. <laughs> Likewise, I'm the first to take advice and the first to praise advice if I feel it's it suited to me but a lot of the time like I said I, I feel that people were very quick to try and apply this blueprint to me and I was never going to be you know for obvious reasons the fact I would I have one hand it, there isn't a blueprint there isn't someone you can look at back in history and say ah well he had a very successful career and he was just like you you know that it wasn't like that most of the people who played my repertoire and if you look back from history having already had some sort of career as a two-handed pianist I was starting straight away in left-hand repertoire as a one-handed pianist. I'm kind of that first one to kind of have to, have to do that. So how can you apply the same blueprint that you do to a two-handed pianist? That How can you apply that? I just don't think it would work. And, and clearly it hasn't worked because I've, I've done my own thing. Well, even if, it, even if those blueprints could work, it seems like a blessing in many respects, but certainly in the sense that it would lead you to at least ask or say to yourself, wait, hold on a second now. Let's let's test these assumptions. You know, let's question these assumptions because maybe it doesn't apply to me, whereas a lot of other people would have probably accepted the blueprint as the default, but you were in a position to have that instinctual response of questioning, which I think is is always a good instinct to have. Yeah. And like I say, you know, I've got it wrong many times as well. I'm not saying that you know, I've gone through and every decision I've made is right. Of course not. That isn't the case. But at the same time, I think my wrong decisions, I've certainly learned from very quickly. Well, you mentioned food. You've mentioned food a couple of times. I'm quite a fan of food myself. What is the best meal or drink you've ever had? Best meal I had was in Japan. It was the end of my, I went out there to promote my album over there. Um, so I was out there for 10 days, solid press. You know what it's like when you're doing these promotions of right. books or whatever you're having to do it's hard work mm -hmm. and the end of it they took me out for this you know big celebratory meal what's it it wasn't actually called called the wagyu beef but basically it was similar but it was called something else i can't remember the name of it um but the you should have seen Akushi, maybe Could have been. i can't remember but you should have seen the size of these fillet steaks like i've never seen anything in my life and it was cooked all in front of by a private chef in a private dining absolutely beautiful and that was the hands down best meal i've ever had in my life was it the food was it the company was it Everything. the relief i guess it was all of it, it was 
it was the relief of having done, you know, a good 10 days work. I, I'm, I like working and I like it when it goes well, as we all do. So, you know, it was that it was the success of everything. It was the team I was with who were just brilliant. You know, they're really great. Um, my manager was with me as well. So it was lovely to travel. And it was just everything as well as the ambience, as well as the head chef cooking for us as well. You know, the whole thing, the theater of it, it was just brilliant. Oh, this makes me. This all makes me want to go back to Japan. Yeah, I know. I immediately. <laughs> uh, outside of music, or I shouldn't say outside of music. I'll say outside of classical piano. Where do you geek out? Meaning, do you have any odd obsessions uh, or obsessions like a Star Wars, a sports team, wine, anything? Not really. I mean, I'm I'm very much interested in something and I do get slightly geeky over things like interior design, for instance. If I wasn't going to be a pianist and I wasn't going to be a chef, then I'd have probably wanted to go into interior design because I love it. And I love, you know, doing up houses and kind of, you know, I've helped my mum and dad a lot with theirs and I've helped friends. And, you know, if, if anyone, any of my friends are moving into somewhere new, they're all like, Nick, will you come and help me with, you know, because I, I just love it. And I love getting into people's heads to see what their style is and what they want. And I like to put together, you know, obviously if I've got the time, I don't have as much time anymore. But, you know, when I am on time off, I've, I'm always reading interior design books or looking for various things that I want to do to my house. And so that's something where I, I probably do kind of, it's so different from my job, um, even though it's creative still, it's so different from what I do. And it's something that I do get quite excited about in a geeky way. You know, I love going kind of interiors shopping. <laughs> Are there any, do you have any favorite books or magazines or anything else? Yeah, my, my favorite designer is Kelly Hoppen. She's more, I think she's more well known here, but she does lots of lots of really high end luxury hotels and yachts and various things. But she also have got she's got a really nice um, these nice books which have done her kind of more normal homes, if you like, not kind of billionaire homes. <laughs> right. um, and 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 she kind of teaches you that how to design and and her thought process. And I like that. I like reading about her actual process of it as opposed to someone just telling you like this is why I did this. And this is why she was actually saying like, you know, if you put this against this, this will really work and this will create some drama and blah, blah, blah. So I, I, I like, I like her a lot. And I also like, I mean, it's not so much designs, but there's, there's often design companies, which I like a lot, which wouldn't really mean anything to you, but anything to anybody even over here, because it's only, you don't really use the design companies if you use them, but I know them because I, I almost take influence from their design style. What is what is one that comes to mind? You'd be surprised who's listening to this. <laughs> yeah. There's one called Hill House Interiors, and they design a lot of the lovely show homes um, over here. And it's very similar to my style of, of my house. Um, so I've designed my whole house almost off the back of their styling of how they've designed their interiors. They, I think they're, they're wonderful. Hill House Interiors. Mm. In Weybridge and Surrey. I will, I will check that out. What purchase for less than a hundred dollars? I don't know what the exchange rate is now. So let's. Well, it's dropped today. Now we're out of the EU. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let's just call it. Let's just call it a hundred pounds. Uh, has has most positively impacted your life in recent memory, and it could just be a purchase. I'm just looking for something that isn't, say, the price of a grand piano. It is actually. This is this is quite random, but I love it. It's a diffuser for aromatherapy oils hmm. and I have it in my, 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 my piano is in my lounge 
and I have this diffuser on and I put different oils in for when I'm practicing. I would put geranium in, for instance, which I love and I just find kind of relaxes me, but at the same time keeps me perked up enough to be able to work. Right. Whereas if I want to re- relax, I might put, you know, ylang ylang in or something like that. I'm, I'm really almost suddenly in the last six months got quite interested in aromatherapy because I can, I've 100% felt the effects of different aromas and my concentration or my, my relaxation or whatever. So I would say that and it was only 50 pounds and the oils that I bought with it probably amounted in total to maybe about 80, 80 pounds. So, yeah, that is what and I use it every day when I'm here. I love it. It's Neil's Yard, which is a, a big brand over here of, of kind of natural organic um, aromatherapy oils and skincare products and various things like that. Yeah. And I, I love that. And it, it, I, only because it, I've seen such a difference. So it's one of those diffusers. It's not like you put the candle in and it, but it's a, an electric one which kind of emits steam. Well, this this is I mean this this will sound funny to my fans too. This is this is actually of great interest to me. I, I recently got a sauna, a built a barrel sauna based on specs from uh, two former guests, Laird Hamilton, a, a world famous big wave surfer, and Rick Rubin, the music producer. And I've bought various oils like eucalyptus oil, and I I do not know what the hell to do with them. Uh, <laughs> it was yeah. just it was just in the people who bought this also bought category on Amazon. So I went on like a 3am binge and bought a ton of stuff. But uh, I also noticed about a week ago, I had a woman blow frankincense, basically uh, had put oils on her hands and then blew through her hands onto me. <laughs> this is requires a lot of explanation. I won't get into, but to, to relax, to, to relax me. And it were it's, it had the desired effect immediately. It was very and psychosomatic or not. I don't really care in this case because I needed to fucking relax and it worked. Yeah. So I will have to check out. Defi- I love it. And you know, everyone comes into my, they come into my home and they say, oh, what's that smell? It's beautiful. And I love that. What a nice thing for people to, you know, to be greeted by. I think we're very affected by smells as humans. Oh, definitely. And, and I think so people often overlook that, you know, the amount of gorgeous places I've been in or beautiful hotel rooms and things. And the ones I remember are the ones who have, you know, have a, have a lovely smell to them, have a lovely, it instantly transforms the environment, doesn't it? I feel so. And it's certainly in, because I work from home a lot. It certainly transforms my my working home life in a in a more positive way. It certainly helps me concentrate or helps me relax. And yeah, and when I'm practicing in a room, if I'm not at home, I miss it. <laughs> oh, for sure. So geranium, which I have not so experienced. Yeah, I use geranium a lot. I love that. That's my one. That I kind of. So it's relaxing, but allows you to have a calm focus of yeah, sorts. Yeah, it doesn't relax me too. You don't want to be dopey when you're working. Right. You know, be kind of relaxed because you that focus still. And I find that really works with me. Uh, this is exciting for me. Well, I will try that. Uh, we could keep going for hours, I am sure, Nicholas, but uh, I would want to be respectful of your time. I know we're a couple of time zones apart. And where can people find you online, learn more about you your music say hello on social if uh, if you're engaged on any particular platform and so on well i think the best for, for your listeners if they go and check me out on youtube nicholas mccarthy um they'll be able to at least see what we've been talking about today and i think that's the first thing it's so visual what i do 
So I always encourage people just to go and look because it, it will, you know, instead of us explaining it, it's going to be so much more fulfilling for some, for your listeners to be able to actually watch and see what I do. Um, but yeah, come and say hello on, on Twitter. Come and say hello on Facebook. I'm N McCarthy Piano on on Twitter and and Facebook. So come and say hi. Um, and yeah, I, I look forward to, to hearing this when it goes out and chatting to your your lovely listeners. Well, I hope they I hope that they all check out your work and listen to your work and say hello on social and for everybody listening, of course, links to everything that we discussed will be in the show notes as usual at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast where you can find all previous episodes as well. And Nicholas, thank you so much for the time. This was a good this was great fun. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. And to everyone listening, as always, and until next time, thank you so much for spending time with The Tim Ferriss Show. (laughs) Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.